These sounds are heard almost every single day at a hospital somewhere in one of the world's war zones. The state of Aleppo's hospitals is the subject of fierce debate this weekend following claims about the effect of bombing in the rebel-held east. The Syrian city's health director... Airstrikes on the city of Kunduz in Afghanistan that killed at least 22 people at a Médecins Sans Frontières hospital on Saturday have been strongly condemned by the UN Secretary-General. They are hospitals and they are, they are patients. Uh, people that are trying to get well are in fact being bombed. The World Health Organization estimates there were at least 300 attacks on medical facilities in 2016, but accurate figures are almost impossible to collect. A lot of the violence is perpetrated out of sight of cameras. Data takes a long time to float to the surface. In the absence of solid numbers, personal testimony is the strongest indicator of what frontline medical practitioners face. Music eased the weight on the registration line at the Middle East Medical Assembly's Conflict Medicine Conference at American University of Beirut Medical School. Medical practitioners have flown in from war zones to learn about best clinical practice when supplies are short and time is of the essence, how to treat open abdomen wounds and remove unexploded ordnance from the human body. There are also sessions on humanitarian law, Arguments are made for more robust protection from the deadly violence that comes at medical staff from all sides. Doctors are growing increasingly frustrated by the inability of international organizations and law to protect them and allow them to do their work. Exactly. It's not going to stop. Exactly. It's not going to stop as long as it's attacked. Two surgeons with decades of experience in conflict zones, American Robert Hoffman and Swiss Enrique Steiger, were critiquing a talk titled Attacks on Health Personnel and Infrastructure that seemed to avoid the major question, how to make the attacks stop. Basic health care is a human right. I don't believe anymore in, in this talking from all these organizations. So are you tipping this now? <laughs> we went through so many stages where we were stopped uh, on our convoys, where our patients were unloaded, where our patients were killed on the spot in the streets, like in Rwanda, in Sierra Leone, in all these places. And it repeated over and over again. And we spoke out. We spoke to these people from the United Nations. We spoke to the International Committee of the Red Cross. We spoke with all these politicians. But there was just talking. And in the end, I realized I can put up so many books about international humanitarian law, build up a wall with books around my hospital, and it won't protect the bombing and the killing of our patients. So nowadays, attack on healthcare facilities has become a part of operational response to uh, threats. It's a pretty pessimistic situation. As long as attacking civilians is a technique of war, it's going to continue. Same thing with bombing and destroying healthcare facilities. It's considered an actual tactic. And once it's a tactic, you know, governments and armies are going to use it. And I just don't see a way to stop it. The tactics of war have changed over the last quarter century. The humanitarian principles that provide some legal framework to constrain the violence have not. The medical act in situation of conflict is at the origin of humanitarian action. 
Fabrizio Carbone, International Committee of the Red Cross's head of delegation in Lebanon. You know, once you're out of combat, once you're wounded, you're entitled to receive first protection, not to be executed, to be looted on the battlefield, but you're entitled to be protected and you're entitled to receive medical help. The origins of the Red Cross and humanitarian law go back to the middle of the 19th century, to the Battle of Solferino in 1859. The French army, under Napoleon III, faced off against the Austrian army, led by Emperor Franz Joseph I. 300,000 men met on the field of battle near Solferino, a small town between Milan and Verona. After nine hours of combat, nearly 5,000 were dead and more than 22,000 were wounded, many lying where they fell, receiving no medical treatment. A Swiss observer of the carnage, Henri Dunant, organized local people to bring some kind of relief to the stricken soldiers. Dunant, a man of private wealth, self-published a book about his experiences. It was the first step in the lobbying that would create the Red Cross in 1863 and the first Geneva Convention on the amelioration of the condition of the wounded in armies in the field the following year. War today is different. Emperors no longer command armies into battle in great open spaces. Conflict is everywhere and involves everyone unlucky enough to be nearby, says the Red Cross's Carboni. You cannot localize anymore the conflict and the violence, the destruction, the killing in one place. It's all around us. And the most dramatic evolution, I believe, it's the fact that civilians are, voluntarily or not, the main victim of conflict, which is quite new. I mean, new in the last hundred years. You know, the, the, the first uh, world war for one civilian killed, you had 10 soldiers killed. Today is the other way around. Today, for one soldier combatant killed, you have 10 civilians killed. The humanitarian medical response has had to adjust to these terrifying new circumstances. Medical workers need to get closer to the civilian populations being attacked. For a very long time, humanitarian action was not in the conflict, was around the conflict. You know, for many years, uh, we worked on borders, you know, Vietnam in Thailand, southern Sudan in Kenya. Now we can work inside the conflict, which is quite new, which is way more dangerous. You expose yourself way more to risks. Nowhere are the risks greater than in the multi-sided conflict in Syria. With all hospitals now closed in eastern Aleppo amid fresh attacks, the quarter of a million people who are still there must now rely on small health clinics instead. How many of these neighbourhood centres there are is not clear, but they're unlikely to provide what's needed, namely access to trauma care and major surgery facilities, not to mention help with chronic health conditions which require medication. 60% of healthcare facilities in Syria had been damaged or destroyed more than 650 medical staff killed. I mean, it's just, it's huge because you don't just kill a doctor. You kill also all the people who are not going to be treated by this doctor. Doctor will flee, will stop doing their work. So, you know, the, the ripple effect, it, it's, it's devastating. Uh, and you have the same in Yemen, Niger, Pakistan. I mean, a lot of places where really health becomes a, a weapon.
you know, give access, you don't give access to health, it becomes a way to wage war. Syria grabs the world's attention, but there are other wars and other problems. It's 10 o'clock. Good evening. You're listening to The World Tonight with James Kamarasamy. Tonight, a special report from Yemen, where famine and cholera are rife and where medical teams are struggling to cope. I was talking to a colleague who came back from Yemen. Three months ago, he was there in one of the public hospitals. You still have people who, who were working, but uh, most of them didn't receive, haven't received their salary for six, seven months. He went back there a couple of weeks ago. The staff was on strike. And, and that's a consequence of this long-term uh, protracted crisis. So today you don't die only of the direct consequence of the violence, you know, a bomb falling on your head. But you die or you have a miserable life, you, your family, because the, the, the public services are not existing anymore. The risks come from all sides. Local insurgents, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Governments attack their own people, as in Syria, and outside states, primarily Russia, Iran, and the U.S., intervene on the side of their proxies or allies. Medical staff are caught in the crossfire. On the 3rd of October 2015, a hospital run by Médecins Sans Frontières in Kunduz, Afghanistan, was attacked by an American warplane in the middle of the night. The hospital was the main regional trauma center for the Kunduz area, 335 kilometers due north of Kabul. There were 105 patients in the facility that night, along with medical staff. Heman Nagaratnam was MSF's head of operations in Kunduz that evening. In Beirut, where he was attending the conflict medicine conference, he recalled the attack came out of nowhere. That particular day, uh, go for runs inside the hospital and outside as well. We have quite a number of non-medical staffs working at guard, cleaners, cook, and so on. And I just advised them, you know, it's quieter, take some rest. I came back to my office, started working on my computer. Approximately 2 or 9, the first hit happened. And it was quite uh, clear something with bombed the near closest. It's a bit difficult for me to say, is it a hospital or is it uh, the kitchen or the pharmacy? So the first thing, I took shelter so I can able to contact my colleagues and my staffs to know what's going on. But it was hard to figure out what was going on because the American plane kept circling and firing more than 211 shells during the length of the attack. The shelling was hitting approximately between 30 to 45 minutes continuous. At this point, no one, I, I didn't go out. You need to protect yourself first. When the firing stopped, Nagaratnam raced out to check on the situation. And then the moment I walk out from the office, I can see the entire building is burning. And of course, you can hear there's a lot of explosion inside the hospital. This is very much linked to the oxygen bottles. And I can see people are screaming, running around. So I'm trying to talk to people. I say, okay, come, let's put in one place. Whoever injured, let's bring them in. Let's try to look for people. It's a bit difficult. You know, people are panicked and people are running everywhere. It's a huge compound. And of course, some people knows where I am and my other colleagues are, so the people coming to our office. So immediately we try to do an emergency response for those who are injured. But at that time, it's still difficult for me to know what exactly happened. In the cold light of day, the damage was revealed. In a compound with at least 10 buildings, the hospital and the hospital alone was destroyed. None of the other buildings had been hit. 
42 people were dead, including 14 MSF staff. The next day, president of MSF International, Dr. Joanne Liu, was in Kunduz to make clear her anger. On Saturday morning, MSF patients and staff killing Kunduz joined the countless number of people who have been killed around the world in conflict zones and referred to as collateral damage or as an inevitable consequence of war. International humanitarian law, it is not about mistakes. It is about intentions, facts, and why. The why of the attack was something the U.S. could not address immediately, although President Barack Obama did issue a statement. President Obama spoke by telephone with Doctors Without Borders International President Dr. Joanne Liu to apologize and express his condolences for the MSF staff and patients who were killed and injured when a U.S. military airstrike mistakenly struck an MSF field hospital in Kunduz. The American commander in Afghanistan, General John F. Campbell, struggled to pin down the reason why for the attack. We have now learned that on October 3rd, Afghan forces advised that they were taking fire from enemy positions and asked for air support from U.S. forces. An airstrike was then called to eliminate the Taliban threat, and several civilians were accidentally struck. This is different from the initial reports, which indicated that U.S. forces were threatened and that the airstrike was called on their behalf. There are still many questions. At the time of the attack, the situation was chaotic. For nearly six months, the Taliban have been trying to capture Kunduz from Afghan government forces. The front line around and inside the city kept shifting as the battle ebbed and flowed. Fighters from all sides, as well as civilians, were brought to the hospital for treatment. MSF acknowledges that there may have been Taliban in the trauma center at the time because the organization follows the precepts of the Geneva Conventions. Wounded combatants are not discriminated against based on who they are fighting for. That is international humanitarian law. And while they are in a medical facility, they are not to be attacked. The precise targeting of the hospital, while the other buildings in the compound were untouched, does make it seem as if the attack was deliberate. Regardless of the cause, Kunduz has been without a medical facility for nearly two years with devastating consequences. MSF's international medical director, Sebastian Spencer. If you look at the sheer number of operations carried out in 2015, there was about 5,000 for more than 4,000 people. 5,000 for more than 4,000 people, I don't... It, it means that some people were operated on more than once because they suffer very uh, severe trauma. Uh, and so it's, it's current that you actually need to go to uh, operation theater several times. For these people, it means their life being saved. It means for a family to still have somebody who's contributing to the welfare, well-being of the family. It means limbs being saved, and that has a very important economical value also for these people. So if you imagine two years, it's a year and a half now, but it will be two years before we can reopen a project. There's been two years without having that facility there. So it would be more than 8,000 people who needed surgery and may not have had access to uh, that level of care. The Kunduz attack received international publicity because it involved the United States and the best-known frontline medical NGO, MSF. But most attacks go unreported. 
Today's no-rules warfare means news organizations are reluctant to base reporters out in the field in places like Yemen, Libya, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Since traditional news media can't report the story, Médecins Sans Frontières has decided to bring the attacks to public attention via new immersive media. In a plaza outside the Beirut Conference Hall, they erected a small field hospital tent. Inside, there was some basic medical equipment and an MSF staffer inviting visitors to put on virtual reality goggles and experience an attack for themselves. The video you are about to see depicts the dramatization of an attack of a hospital. The content may be very difficult to watch. If you need someone to talk to after the experience, we have specialists present to support you. I put the goggles on and was immediately immersed in another world. The scenario I watched through the virtual reality goggles is based in part on testimony from Kunduz survivors. Looking straight ahead, I saw a room with shelves containing medicine and beyond that an alcove with a gurney and a person covered in a sheet on it. I turned my head to the left and an operating theater came into view. Turned right and saw a doctor in a white lab coat come through a door and slowly I became aware of increasing sounds and then the sounds grew louder. The place was under attack. The wounded were brought in. One person seemed to die right in front of me. Panic grew. I was a little shaken when I took off the goggles. A medical student who had also experienced the virtual reality world wasn't really bothered. I had this experience before, like an explosion that happened here in, uh, in Beirut, so like, I didn't feel that it was different from the experience I had. I mean, I had the same feelings, more or less. Yeah. Did, did it make you deja vu? Did you have that feeling? Uh, did, does it agitate you in no, a way? No, it didn't. It didn't. Yeah. But honestly, as a medical student was going to do surgery for later on, I don't think that it would uh, interfere with my feelings later on, hopefully. This is, this is the, the joy of being Lebanese. <laughs> a bomb goes off. It's yeah, you feel sorry for the, for the people who died or the people who are injured, but it's happening, but we can't prevent it. Six months after the Kunduz attack, the UN Security Council adopted Resolution 2286, strongly condemning attacks against medical facilities and personnel in conflict situations. The Secretary General at the time, Ban Ki-moon, told reporters, There must be action. There must be accountability. International law is clear. Medical workers, facilities, and transport must be protected. Respect for international humanitarian law is at rock bottom. The Geneva Conventions were agreed among states, but in this age of asymmetric warfare and warlord-on-warlord conflicts, perhaps they are no longer effective. It's been fairly fashionable to speak about the erosion of the Geneva Conventions. Yves LaHaye, lawyer with the Red Cross. What's happening is not an erosion of the law, but a lack of respect. 
part of LaHaye's job is to monitor Geneva Convention compliance. We don't really have evidence that the violations are on the increase from decades ago, but I think we are much more aware of those violations now, given the, the plethora of images that, that surrounds us. We don't really need different laws. We don't need new instruments per se. What we really need is the enforcement of existing obligations. At the Conflict Medicine Conference, there were many doctors who had endured pretty horrendous experiences. But what was interesting was how many seemed unscathed. Andres Otil Mateo is a psychiatrist. He says just because physicians endure stress doesn't mean they suffer from PTSD. The P in PTSD is post, so that's a post-traumatic stress disorder. People who are still in conflict, people who are still under stress, they do develop anxiety, burnout, which is very common among physicians, but not necessarily what we call as PTSD. A war surgeon, he's going to a place where he knows that he will be exposed to trauma. So that usually helps people in dealing with the adversity. Otil Matteo, formerly at Yale University, has run long-distance psychiatric consultations into Syria and has also worked with doctors rotating out of that conflict. We ran a workshop in southern Turkey. We brought doctors who worked on the borders. So they start talking about feeling anxious, feeling burnout, a lot of irritability, anger. All these emotions are, are there, but they see it as just part of the work. Medical staff seem to thrive on the pressure. He mentioned one doctor in particular. He was based in southern Turkey. That was like maybe two years ago, based in southern Turkey, and then he will go to northern Aleppo for three weeks at a time, and then he comes back for two weeks, and then he goes back. And every time he left and he was in the safety of southern Turkey, he will start having all these symptoms, feeling that he abandoned people, worrying, not being able to sleep, having nightmares. Your symptoms are kind of adaptive. Like, you are sleeping only three hours, so you don't notice that you are sleeping. You are always fearing that someone's going to bomb you. So the, the heightened anxiety feels normal. But then once you put them in safety, that's when they start having all these symptoms. This is why also many people end up going back, because they feel alive when they are in these situations. I did not get a chance to ask Dr. Enrique Steiger if that is why he continues to return to war zones to practice frontline medicine. He was too busy talking about what needed to be done to make it possible to save lives without threat to one's own or one's patients. I don't call this humanitarian anymore, you know. This is really something which I carry around as a burden. I'm doing this for 25 years. Pragmatically, what you're asking for then is to be embedded with a military group because you don't want to carry guns. No. That makes you a target. No. But you want you want actual protection. Yes. And so actually, that when you're, when you're convoying someone, uh, people to hospital, they aren't removed from the back of your truck and summarily shot. Exactly. And I think that's going to be the future of healthcare in war zones. If we deny it or not, it's, I, I don't see any other solution doing that. In general, I don't want that military is actually protecting us. And our original idea was actually to create a kind of humanitarian police force. Mm. 
A humanitarian police force is a noble but impractical idea, says the Red Cross's Fabrizio Carboni. Who is ready to die for this? I mean, who is ready to put, you know, boots on the ground and accept to take, uh, you know, casualty? If you go against the will of a party to a conflict, non-state armed group, it means that you're ready to fight, you're ready to die. Who is ready to do that? And would it work better than what we have today, which is a system based on negotiation, persuasion, with all these limits, with all these difficulties? The wars of today, from the Democratic Republic of Congo through Syria and Afghanistan, seem never-ending. The need for fresh medical troops is constant. MSF was recruiting young doctors at the Beirut conference. I finished my residency in a year, and I'm a general surgeon. And I wanted to, before I go to my fellowship, to volunteer for at least a year in MSF, on the field, in the field. Hiba Ibedin was keen to sign up. But uh, it seems online when I tried to apply, all the requirements, all the places require you to have work experience for two to three years. So you want to go to the front? I'm hoping so, yeah. Nothing that you've heard of the, in this conference about the danger? I have, but uh, I'm uh, going to specialize in trauma surgery, so it's an interest for me, and I'd like to have uh, experience in, uh, in areas of true conflict. Have you ever been in a conflict area? Uh, no, not really, not like that. Someone needs to volunteer. And I don't think me being a woman plays a factor in my decision. Never occurred to me even that as a woman or a man, it didn't matter. I mean, I have the same uh, skills and work experience as a guy, general surgeon. Another thing about conflict medicine is that it attracts people who think that with enough effort, the world can be made better. MSF Sebastian Spencer. I do believe that we have actually already prevented some attacks on health facilities, and that is a great achievement. Is that, just, is that a general belief, or can you give me a specific? If you look at trends on attack on health facilities in Yemen, clearly there's been an improvement. The Red Cross's Yves LaHaye says it should not be just medical personnel who are engaged at the front line in the civil and asymmetric wars of our era. We all have a role to play in this. I mean, civil society needs to engage with states to make sure that they enforce their obligation. And we do have, as civil society, also the obligation to engage with the armed groups. And we know what would be the alternative. I mean, I don't think we have an alternative. We cannot have a war without limit. Sadly, today's world seems headed exactly in that direction. War without limits, and in some countries, without end. And with medical staff forced to first do no harm, while squarely in harm's way.